This Jesus, the one we just spoke about, is real. He's not a legend. He existed from before time. He's the eternal deity. He has no beginning nor any end, and yet he became enfleshed, as you know, so as to condescend in order to make himself accessible to one such as you and I. How do we get to God but that God makes a way? And Jesus said, I am the way. During his time here, it wasn't so, it wasn't so easy. We've been tracing the events in the last few days of his life here on earth. And we know we're on good, accurate footing in doing so because the account of the Lord's last week is given to us by an eyewitness of it all. His name is Yochanan in Hebrew, it John. And John, in what's called his gospel, his biography of the Lord, has taken us through thus far the life of Christ. And we are in John chapter 13 tonight. We've been going slowly because there's much in the text. And just to remind you of the context, this is the last, not week, this is the last essentially 24 hours in the life of this Jesus. Soon he'll be publicly executed. Well, he'll be murdered. He'll do so voluntarily in our place. He'll die an excruciating death soon from the point of reference of our text tonight. He'll do so in our place. He's the sin bearer. The wrath of the Father was poured out upon him so that it need not be poured out upon us. These are the events in the text. At this point, it's Passover time in Jerusalem, just to give you a time frame. The city has been flooded by pilgrims during this feast of Israel. They're getting ready for the sacrifice of hundreds, maybe thousands of Passover lambs, and here in their midst stands the Lamb of God, largely unrecognized by the population there. And while all this is going on, um, the Lord is at a dinner. Here's a little bit of depiction of what the Last Supper, that's how we refer to it, looks. Um, now, this is really contrary to the famous painting, isn't it, by Leonardo da Vinci of The Last Supper, which shows the Lord and his followers neatly aligned at an elongated table. Uh, that's a beautiful masterpiece, but probably not an accurate depiction of what happened. This uh, arrangement, which you're seeing, kind of a U-shaped arrangement, is a Roman triclinium. That's what it's called. And that's probably a little more likely what this Last Supper a table arrangement looked like. And so the Lord was there reclining at table with his 12 disciples. We have read last week. He took off his outer garments, picked up a towel, stooped low, filled a basin with water, and with the water he washed the rather dirty feet of his disciples, all 12, counted 24 feet. That's what he did. Then he dried them with the towel. He laid it aside. He stood up. He put his garments, outer garments, back on and began to recline at table once again. What's the point of all this foot washing? It wasn't just to affect physical cleansing of the dirt and grime of 
the highways and byways was a metaphor of ultimate cleansing, the kind we really need, the cleansing from the corruption of our sin. And in that case, the cleansing agent is another liquid, but it's not water, it's blood. The cleansing agent was the blood of the Lord Jesus himself. And we read last week in verse 10, the end of verse 10, that he, the Lord said, you are clean. That's his pronouncement, but he did say, yeah, but not all of you. And my goodness, I'm sure a question loomed large in the ears of the hearers there. What do you mean we're not all clean? Who remains unclean? And so they're all guessing, and if we didn't know better, we would too. Who amongst the 12, in spite of the Lord's ministrations, remains unclean? Well, we don't have to guess. Because the next verse, verse 11, tells us, it says, For he knew, this Jesus knew, the one who was betraying him. It's a process of betrayal. Could have been stopped at any time, but was not. He knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. We know that Jesus spoke of Judas. Judas had his feet washed, as did the others, uh, but Judas's heart remained darkened and uncleansed and untouched by the mercy and grace of the Lord. And Jesus was pained by all this, yet not unaware of it. You see the phrase, for he knew. He saw it all coming and yet voluntarily submitted to it, for this was the purpose with which he was sent, and that is to suffer and die in order to provide redemption for us. So he knew of Judas and his traitorous intentions, and yet even now he's providing, can you see, opportunities for even Judas to turn from it and repent. So verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know, meaning do you understand, what I have done to you? They saw what he had done, they knew of it, but they didn't understand the significance of it, and therefore he asks, do you get it? He doesn't wait for their speculation, he provides the answer and the interpretation to what he had just done. It's in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's what he did. Therefore, I gave you, verse 15, an example that you also should do as I did to you. And now we have an idea of why he did what he did. It's an example to follow. Now, what is it specifically an example of? Is the Lord exemplifying foot washing? Is it the practice of foot washing that he wants for us to continue to practice as his disciples, even down to this very day? Is this what we are supposed to do? Is this what the verse is actually telling us to do? Is it the practice of foot washing, or is it the principle behind the foot washing that the Lord wants us to continue? As with many things, there's difference of opinion. Some hold to the fact that the Lord literally meant when we gather as a community of faith in him, we ought to practice regularly the washing of each other's 
feet. And some even say this is a third ordinance for the church. The word ordinance means a mandate, a commandment. We have two, for sure, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some would say we should add to those two a third, this one, foot washing. They see it to be equivalent to a third ordinance or mandate of Almighty God. I... uh, don't want to criticize anyone because foot washing is not inherently a bad thing. If a group wants to engage in it, they're surely free to, but I don't think you can prove really that it's the third ordinance and that it's a requirement for the church to practice. I say this because the only other place in the entire New Testament where foot washing is even mentioned is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. The context there is not a worship service, It's a reference to a very wonderful, gracious widow who, in order to show hospitality, washed, offered to wash the feet of her guests. But nowhere in the New Testament is foot washing mentioned as an ordinance of the church. And so what the Lord did in, in our text tonight was to wash dirty feet. (laughs) And uh, don't want to ruin your appetite, but it's an illustration of some dirty feet right there. And I'll tell you why I'd like you to take a look at it. When foot washing is practiced in various churches who do so today, they're not actually washing dirty feet, are they? I would like to think most people kind of take care of that themselves before they get to church. Most people don't come with feet looking like that, do they? Uh, Usually they wash those feet and put clean socks on them. So if foot washing is actually taking place, it really doesn't mirror what the Lord did at all. Folks, he washed dirty, stinking feet. So uh, from my point of view, I don't think it's the perpetuation of the practice that the Lord is ordaining. I think it's a principle represented by the practice that is to be done even for us today. I think the Lord is showing to us not an example of foot washing, but an example of humility. I don't think he's commanding us to perform the act. I think he's commanding us to develop the attitude represented by the act, and it is the attitude of humility. And so I think what the Lord wants us to do then is not to practice the ordinance of foot washing, I think he wants us, if you will, to practice the ordinance of humility. You think the Lord's disciples needed that lesson? Boy, I think they did. Uh, We spoke last week of what they did just prior to this Last Supper get-together. I'll tell you what they were doing. They were arguing with one another. In fact, Luke chapter 22, verse 24 makes it clear. It says, and there arose also a dispute among them, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. While their master was preparing to serve them, they were arguing about who's the greatest and therefore is to be served by the others. Yeah, they, they did need a lesson on humility. In fact, in the culture of the day, humility, which perhaps we see today, I hope we do, as a virtue, was seen to be a vice. To be a humble person was not something considered to be a good thing. In fact, it was considered in that culture, 
to be a, a sign of weakness to be avoided. But the Lord, as is typical, turns everything upside down all around. What he does is counterintuitive. He's radical, Rabbi Jesus. And essentially, he's teaching that the way to greatness is this very thing through humility. This is one of the paradoxes in the Bible. A paradox is a statement, kind of a self contradictory statement. You listen to the statement, and inherent to it, there seems to be an apparent built-in contradiction, and yet it's true. So the Bible is filled with these paradoxical expressions. For instance, do you remember the Bible saying this, love your enemies? <laughs> That's a paradox. You see, inherent to the statement, there, there just seems to be things that we can't harm. That makes, you don't love your enemies. You, you get your enemies. How about this one? This is a killer. Give, and it will be given to you. Where did that come from? That didn't come from the natural world. That's a supernatural kind of a concept. Don't you see that's a paradox? Now, if you have done that, you have found it to be um, not inconsistent at all. You found it to be true. This is one of the paradoxes of the Bible. And now the Lord gives a third paradox. The way to greatness is by becoming a servant to others. Folks, that is counterintuitive. That's not the way. Listen, the world teaches us to claim your rights, stick up for yourself, fight back, look up for number one. That's not paradoxical at all. That makes perfect sense. But then the Lord just shakes it up, and he says, essentially, the way up is down. That's a paradox. So the Lord's disciples were looking at things. They had no choice. Uh, from, the Lord's from the world's perspective and point of view, and they needed help with divine perspectives on this. And so they were looking to be great so as to be served, and the Lord was teaching them that the way to greatness is to serve others. Now, that's different. And so the Lord chose to drive his point home, he being the master teacher, the rabbi to... to with supremacy and effectiveness over all rabbis to drive home this counterintuitive paradoxical teaching, the Lord exemplifies it. He gives an object lesson, and so he, the Lord, stoops down to wash the dirty, not clean, dirty feet of undeserving disciples. And so what he offers, in my opinion, is not a practice to be continued, though you're Sure, free to do so. It's an example of humility to follow. And so he says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did. So this is not my interpretation. This is an example. And this example, of course, you realize, I hope, is not only for those disciples 2,000 years ago, it's just as much for us today as the disciples of the Lord Jesus. He gave us, too, this example of greatness, and it's the greatness of service. Now, what gets in the way of it? Hurt feelings. <laughs> uh, unappreciated acts of service. Someone getting a position of service we think we should have. And then this thing, Serving people who don't deserve it. 
Serving obnoxious, offensive people like everyone else here but you. Those are the things that get in the way of unbridled service. And for these realities, the Lord gives us not just a teaching, a word. He gives us an example to follow. And so he served these disciples without looking for or even expecting a favorable response. For instance, he washed Judas's feet, uh, but Judas soon is going to go out and betray him. He washed Peter's feet, but he denied the Lord that very night. He washed Thomas's feet, but Thomas doubted the Lord's resurrection. He washed all the disciples' feet, but they all deserted him and ran when he was arrested. So when we are tempted, you see, to think of our dignity, our rights, our position, we need to remember the Lord's very clear, indisputable example of humility when he knelt down, Lord of Lords, to wash stinking feet of undeserving disciples. And through this example, the Lord drives home this point. To be great in God's kingdom, we must learn to serve one another. This is the example which he gave us to follow. Then he says in verse 16, truly, truly. He's not wasting words there, no fat in the Bible. When he says truly, truly, do you know he's really saying amen, amen? That's the Greek word underlying this, amen, amen. So wait just a second, amen's supposed to come at the end of what you say, isn't it? Yeah, but only the Lord can get away with doing this. He's amening what he's about to say before he even said it. That's how sure it is. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave, your translation might say a servant, that works too. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus was their master, and as such, he had every right to command their service. Instead, however, he served them. And in so doing, he gave an example to follow. A servant is not greater than his master. Get this. Therefore, if the master becomes a servant, that puts the servants on the same level as their master. Think about it. That means in asking us to be servants, to serve one another, the Lord is not putting us down. He's actually lifting us up because he's asking us to be on the same level as he is and to do the same thing he did. Listen, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when he asks us to do the same, he's he's elevating us. We're on the same level as the master. He dignifies service, even mundane, unnoticed, sometimes unappreciated acts of service. Now, when you think of serving, don't only think big. Usually, that's we want to give incentive for thinking big, but don't do that only in this case. When you think of service, resist the temptation only to think big. What about the tasks of service that seem, seem small and 
insignificant and even unimportant. I'm telling you, there's no such thing. If they're rendered as an offering to an audience of one, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every act of service done for God, no matter how small it may seem, is quite important and significant to him. Once, uh, two teenage boys, I don't know what motivated them, they took it upon themselves to visit a church. They had not been there before. Parents didn't bring them. This was something on their own. Something moved them inside. Both boys went to this church service. It was crowded. They tried to find a seat, had a hard time doing it. An usher. No sensational gifts that put him on a platform or speaking circuit or anything like that. No great voice to sing solos. An usher saw the two boys who were on their way out of the church because they couldn't find a place to sit. And he went over to them and he said, please, please follow me. I'll find you a place to sit. He did. The boys sat down, stayed for the whole service. And when an invitation was given, both accepted the Lord Jesus. I tell you this story because you know the name of one of those boys. You know what his name is? Billy Graham. No act of service is insignificant. What if the usher wasn't attentive? What if he just let them leave? There are no unimportant acts of service when rendered to God. And so we've been talking about serving, but we haven't really identified what is a servant anyway. All of the New Testament words uh, for which we get our English word servant essentially mean one who is not at his own disposal. That's what a servant is. A servant is someone who thinks of himself or herself to be at the master's disposal. And so a servant knows I am not my own. In fact, it actually says this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Listen, or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and here's the words, and that you are not your own. A servant is someone who realizes he's, he's not his own. He's at his master's disposal. And so a servant doesn't ask questions about what I want to do or where I want to go. A servant asks his master, what do you want me to do? And a servant uh, continues to do so until he gets an answer. And so the heart of the servant must be open to what his master wants him to do. Do you know what Christ wants you to do? I, have you figured that out? If not, there's no magic in it. Ask him. Say, Lord, what would you have me do? What's the avenue of service you have for me? And I would recommend you keep asking him until you get an answer. And when you get an answer, and you will, then you must do it. And I would recommend that no matter what, do it and keep doing it until you are certain he wants you to do something else. Today, we had, I think it was a blessing, uh, some of us as ministers met with one of our young ministers to be examined for ordination. And we were there to discuss theological things, and uh, I thought it was a really good time. And then our pastor gave a little word of 
helpful advice to this young minister, and, and it had to do with the sense of call to ministry. That's a supernatural thing, you know. And the pastor gently and lovingly essentially said to him, be sure you're called. You must know about it. And uh, you need that because there are going to be times in the ministry when it's not easy going. It's rough. And then you're going to start questioning, why am I here? What am I doing? And then you look back on the call of the master and you say, you don't exercise your option at that point to bail out because you know what the Lord has called you to do. And so that's good advice, I think, for all of us. Ask him, oh, God, what do you have for me to do? And when he answers, you must keep doing it, even if it goes unappreciated, unrecognized. And even those to whom you are rendering it don't deserve it. Neither do we. So as servants of the Lord, somehow we have got to move from serve us to service. How does that happen? I don't know. I just know it does as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ once again, who exemplified humble service. And it can happen eventually so that in each of our lives, the church becomes not only a place to be served in, but to serve in. We move from serve us to serve us. So I think if you're a member of this church, you ought to be able to count on this church for certain things, you, you should. The church owes you something, things. You ought to be able to count on the church for some things, but your church ought to be able to count on you as individual members for certain things as well. So I ask you, what can this church count on you for? What can this church count on you for? For instance, can your church count on you to love the Lord by serving others in this church? Can your church count on you to follow the Lord's example in the text? Yes or no? You have to answer this yourself. Can your church count on you to be, I love this, as someone has phrased it, people of the towel. I love this. Can we be people of the towel? Can we be counted on it? People who are willing to grab that towel and water basin and figuratively speaking, wash one another's feet. I tell you, this is the kind of people the Lord wants us to be. This is the very example he gave for us to follow. And then he says in verse 17, with which we'll close, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Oh boy. We are blessed by knowing the truths of Scripture. We should be students of the Word and not denigrate it for sure. Theology, the study of God, ought to be our passion for sure. But the real blessing is not just knowing the contents of the Bible and even lofty theological truths. The real blessing is in the knowing and then the doing of what we know. In fact, we're told there's a blessing in it. And in this context, the word blessed means to be glad, to be happy, to be joyful. So the blessing is not just in the knowing, it's in the knowing and the doing of what we know to be true. And so our Lord does not want to hurt us 
minimize us or put us down. No, our Lord wants to bless us and he knows that the blessing is in the serving. And so he wants us to do what he did because he wants us to be blessed as he is. Now, don't miss this. Serving is not the way to be saved. No, serving is the evidence that we're saved. Serving is the byproduct and the fruit of salvation. Don't confuse these. It's easy to do it. I'll serve, therefore, winning points with God. He'll grade on a curve all of my infractions of his law, (laughs) and I'll be off the hook. I won't be accountable to him as a result of my sin because I'm serving. No, 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 no. No, Uh, being saved has to precede serving. So if you or I have not let, if we've not allowed, because of our pride, if we've not allowed the Lord to serve us by washing our feet, what does that mean? By cleansing our sin with his shed blood. If we've not allowed him to do it out of pride, just like Peter. Oh, not my feet, Lord. You will not wash my feet. Remember when he said, if I don't do that, you have no part of me. There's no union with me. And so the hardest thing about allowing the Lord Jesus to cleanse us, to save us, is that we're required to do nothing but receive it. We hate that because there's nothing to brag about. I, I have nothing to boast about with regard to my own virtue and merits. All I can boast in is the cross. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly correct. And so I shared this earlier. I'll do it again. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then we're told the premier way in which he did. And to give his life as a ransom for many. I uh, invite you tonight even as you sit, I hope, comfortably where you are, I I invite you um, to allow the Lord Jesus to serve you. You know, the Bible, in assigning a color to sin, calls it scarlet. Isn't that interesting? Though your sins are as scarlet. It's red. And only the red blood of Jesus can cover the scarlet nature of our sin. And so if we allow the Lord Jesus to serve us by saving us from our sin through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, then we begin a life of blessed service. We find our purpose in life. It's to be a bond servant of Christ. And here's the paradox. To serve Christ is to really be free indeed. Before you leave tonight, we have people in the back room, the Connection Center. They'll meet with you if you'd like to pray and even explore knowing Christ a little bit more. That's the paradoxical starting point. He doesn't require from us any virtue, promises, commitment, worth, or merits. He only says, will you allow me to wash your feet? They're dirty. Will you allow me to cleanse you of your sin by my shed blood. And if so, the Bible says we become a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. We become blessed 
bondservants of the Lord Jesus. I pray, if there's any doubt about where you stand, I pray by faith you leave here tonight saying, uh, from this point on, this is who I am. I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus, the one who served me by suffering and dying in my place. In fact, I'd like to pray that. Please join me. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, you having stooped and bowed before, of all people, us first. You set the pace, O God, in humble service. We cannot duplicate exactly what you've done. Only your shed blood can provide remission of our sin because you're the only sinless one. And, O God, we thank you for, therefore, suffering, dying, that we need not. You are a substitute for us. I pray our pride doesn't keep us from allowing you to wash us clean. I pray there be not a person in this room who hasn't at one time said, Lord Jesus, come into my life, the life of a sinner. My sin has separated me from you. Thank you for being the mediator between me and your father. Take my hand, put it in your father's hand. Be the mediator, the only one. Set me free from the penalty, presence, even power of sin in my life. and Make me to be a follower of yours. Rub off on me. Make me to be a humble servant of others as you exemplify by humbly serving me. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.